morning. It's so nice to see you here. <laughs> Amen. Amen. I'm telling you, empty chairs just don't cut it. They just don't, you know. I tried. I tried. We, we didn't save one. Not a single chair went into the baptistry. Not a single chair shouted hallelujah at the appropriate time. <laughs> well, God bless you all. It is, again, so good to see you, and I'm glad you're here. We're going to be in the Word together. We have, I think, um, I, I find this really, really interesting this morning, Exodus chapter 30, so you can turn in your Bibles there, Exodus 30. And we're going to come to now a furnishing in the tabernacle that has yet to be described to us. Very interesting. The Lord goes through five of the furnishings of the tabernacle. He talks about the Ark of the Covenant, and he describes for Moses, gives the detailed blueprints for the mercy seat that would sit upon the top of the ark, for the golden lampstand, the golden table of showbread, and even the bronze altar that would be in the outer courtyard. But two pieces of furniture remain. One is the bronze laver, which we won't talk about this morning, for washing and cleansing. But the other one, highly significant, is left to itself in Exodus chapter 30. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 1. Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit, and its width a cubit, and it shall be square. Its height shall be two cubits. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns. You shall make for a gold, and, and you shall make gold molding all around for it. You shall make two gold rings for it under its molding, and you shall make them on its two side walls, on opposite sides, and they shall be holders for the poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the ark of the testimony where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn incense, fragrant incense on it, he shall burn it every morning and when he, when he trims the lamps. When Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer any strange incense on this altar or burnt offering or meal offering, and you shall not pour out a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement, once a year throughout your generations, it is most holy to the Lord. Father, this is not just another piece of furniture. We might see it, Ashley's furniture, some furniture warehouse somewhere. This is holy to you, highly significant. And so we want to address it that way, come before you and before this furnishing and recognize its uniqueness, its singularity, its, its purpose, I pray, Father, that any notions or preconceptions we might have coming into this would just be set aside and we would let your word speak truth to our hearts to comprehend and to understand what it is that you have for us this morning. And Father, I pray a blessing over all who hear. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that your word would not come back to you empty, but your word, which goes forth from your mouth, would succeed in the matter for which you sent it. For all who are gathered here in this place, for all who are gathering at home right now, 
and tuning in and listening and in fellowship with us, though yet from afar. For all who will hear this later on a podcast or, or streaming on YouTube, Father, your, your ability to get your word out beyond us is, is truly remarkable. And I just ask that this message would be heard and received by open hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this is a weird place to start because as I consider the tabernacle and all the things that went on inside the, the outer wall, so in the outer court and on the, in the inner court, it's strange because it must have been a remarkably sensory experience. We talk a lot about the spirit and the spirit man, the spirit woman, and the spiritual self. And we normally talk pretty negatively of the flesh, but think through this with me just for a minute. What would happen for a priest serving in this tabernacle ministry, the feel, the, the, the sensory feel of the cool water washing hands and feet and the smooth linen fabric up against the skin, and then the hairy, meaty, visceral sensation of animals outside and, and in. That must have been surreal at the beginning. Um, the sight, just the sight of gushing blood at the bronze altar in the outer court, or the shimmering light visually seen of the oil lamps that would sparkle off of the gold menorah and reflect off the other gold furnishings in, in the holy place, reflecting even glowing against the woven colors of, of the tent itself and the veil. Then the sounds, think about the sounds of, of bleeding, buying, snorting rams, lambs, goats, and bulls. It could have been, must have been, at times very noisy, at other times the soft, swishing robes of the high priest with those little bells jingling on the hymn. Think about the taste of the fresh-baked bread of the presence, baked every, every day, set out fresh daily. Oil-spread, unleavened cakes and wafers, juicy charbroiled steak, and the finest of wine. All these that I've described are sensory sensations that took place in the priestly ministry of the tabernacle. By the way, what took place in the outer court where the bronze altar stood was mostly noisy, clamorous, messy, and harsh. That environment outside, and that's interesting to me because that's where judgment took place. Noisy, clamorous, messy, and harsh. But inside, in the holy place, in the holy of holies, all was quiet and calm and reflective and peaceful. Inside was where grace and mercy were received. I think that's a huge difference. Judgment, loud and clamorous, and it's what we see going on even in the world. Grace, mercy is peaceful and quiet, reassuring, reflective. But I'm pointing this out to say that God chose to use to engage all five senses. Why? To train the spirit. He does the same thing today. He will utilize the senses. Remember that while flesh can be a negative thing, while flesh wants to go its own way, and while flesh can easily be led into the lusts and temptations of sin, flesh is also God-given. God created. He gave you taste buds. He wants you to enjoy that steak. 
well cooked. <laughs> he, he gave us the, the physical sensations. He wanted us to be able to enjoy seeing each other. You know, hearing the songs of worship lifted up to the Lord, these are all sensory physical sensations, but they train up, they feed, they encourage the spirit. So the flesh under the control of the spirit, that's another thing, and that's what we see going on. I mean, you, you've heard of sensory deprivation? <laughs> Work in the tabernacle would have been sensory amplification. Much to see, much to smell, much to hear, things going on. And speaking of smell, think about that intensity. The intensity of the smell, the heavy burnt flesh odor of the sacrifice. The burnt offering was completely burned up. I mean, we just burned toast in my house when we got to open all the windows. The smoky scent of the grain and the drink offerings also poured out upon that altar. But I imagine, sweetest of all, the first whiff of the holy aroma of incense upon entering the holy place, hanging there in the air. I mean, it was to be, it was to be offered up every day. And so that smoky sweetness in the inner court of the tabernacle the olfactory bulb in all of our heads is interesting. It, it, it gets all the aromatic information directly from the nose. The nose feeds right back into the limbic system of the brain. The limbic system is often called the emotional brain because it's in the limbic system that we have, that, that houses or is home to our memories. It's home to our emotion. And, and the nose feeds right into that. It's like a direct path. And that's why scent so powerfully affects your memory, why it so powerfully influences even emotion, uh, people, places, events that will pop into our mind just because we have or run into a familiar smell. Cheryl bought some night-blooming jasmine that we have out on our deck now. And that stuff, that to me, it's springtime. When I smell jasmine, I'm immediately alerted to a kid in junior high in Southern California smelling it and knowing school was almost out. <laughs> it, it, it still brings that memory to mind. Or, or, or pine trees. When I smell pine trees, I instantly am transported to my grandfather's cabin where we went when I was a kid. Cigarette smoke makes me think of Disneyland. I kid you not, someone smokes, I walk by and get a whiff of smoke and I'm standing in line at the Matterhorn. I mean, that's, this is how I grew up. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about because there, there was no non-smoking and so you'd stand in line and it just reeked, the whole park reeked because everyone's puffing away. And to me, I'd, I mean, yeah, to this day, ooh, Disneyland. Amazing Grace perfume and Cheryl's right there. Because I just know these smells and they speak to my heart, to my emotions. God will utilize the sensory senses to train the spirit. We don't want to be led by the flesh, but the flesh can be used of the Lord when given to the Lord, when offered up to him to, to train up the spirit. Now, Jesus did say, John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. You might say, well, if Jesus has the flesh profits nothing, then we should be complete aesthetics, right? No, he said, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Think about the context. The flesh profits nothing in terms of giving true eternal life. 
but it can be some, of some use in directing us to the giver of life, in being used by him for us to literally experience faith, to experience hope, to feel love. And so with that, we come to this gold altar of incense in this very sensory environment where God is calling to his spirit. Watch this again, verse one. Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning. Now, if we stop right there, you'd say, well, of course, because the word altar means slaughtering place. That's what you make an altar for, to slaughter. So you shall make a slaughtering place for burning, uh, wait a minute, incense. So this is a different kind of altar. And you shall make it of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit and its width a cubit. This shall be a square and its height shall be two cubits and its horns shall be of one piece with it. So 18 inches by 18 inches, three feet high. This is a tiny little altar. It's not so big as you might have thought. Then you shall overlay it with pure gold, its top, its sides, all around its horns. You shall make a gold molding for a crown around it, literally, and you shall make two gold rings for it under its molding. You shall make them on the two side walls on opposite sides, and they shall be holders for the poles which will carry it. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold as well. I want to give you three things this morning to note about the altar of incense. Note this, it's not just information. Like the sensory experience feeding into the spirit, so does emotion or, or information. So information about this altar, things to understand, and, and I'll give them to you right now. It's production, it's placement, and it's purpose. So we're going to note that this morning. It's production, it's placement, and it's purpose. Number one, it's production. That is how it was made. And we read about that in the first five verses. It was the smallest furnishing there in the tabernacle, like I said, a foot and a half square, three feet high, like the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on the inner part of the tabernacle in the most holy place, and like the, like the uh, table of showbread, it was acacia wood framed, gold overlaid. The lampstand, the menorah, was all gold, was just pure gold, no acacia wood. But the others all had acacia wood in them and were overlaid with gold. And also like the table of showbread, the, uh, and like the ark, actually, it had that gold crown molding around it. it. had four horns on the corners, like the ark, like the altar outside as well. And of course, it was mobile. Again, like the ark, it had the gold rings and poles because the tabernacle itself was going places. I think that's interesting with, with Jesus. You're never set right, right in one place. You're, you're moving, we're going. We're going somewhere. This is all ultimately arriving at a final destination. But in Hebrew, the three names of this altar are as follows. Mizbah ha-ketoret, which is altar of incense. That's first used in verse 27 of this chapter. Mizbah ha-ketoret. And that distinguishes its function. It's an altar of incense. So it functions to burn incense. Altar, as I said before, is the word mizbeah, and mizbeah normally means place of slaughter. But again, this is different. This is a mizbah ha-ketoret, altar of incense. It's also a mizbah ha-zahav, which means altar of gold. Altar of incense, distinguishing its function. Altar of gold, which distinguished its form from the bronze altar. So you have two altars in the tabernacle, one of bronze for judgment and slaughter, one of gold for incense. 
That's used in Exodus 40, verse 5. The rabbis have one more name for it that you won't find in the Bible, but it does make sense, and that's Mizbeah Ha Panimi. And that doesn't mean a little sandwich. It means the inner altar, the inner altar. They will speak of it, and in rabbinical writings, they will speak of it as the inner altar to distinguish it from the outer altar. So it's a distinction of location. So that's basic, it's production. You can look at it and read it and get kind of an idea, and you can always Google pictures if you want to do that. But the second point is its placement. And note this, because this has caused some controversy. That is, where was this altar of incense set? You might say, isn't that obvious? Verse 6, you shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the ark of the testimony in front of the mercy seat that is over the ark of the testimony where I will meet with you, in front of the veil. Clear, right? Well, that depends. Is it in front of the veil as you're coming into the most holy, or the holy of holies, or the holy place, or is it in front of the veil when you're exiting the most holy place? Which side of the veil is the front? To the worshiper, the front would be coming in. To the Lord, the front would be going out. So, so that can, in and of itself, cause a little bit of curiosity. What does in front mean? Well, let's use the rest of Scripture to clarify this for us. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 22, leading into verse 23, and this speaks of the temple that Solomon built, so the more solid structure in Jerusalem, says he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also the whole altar, which was by the inner sanctuary, that's the altar of incense, he overlaid with gold. Also, in the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. So wait a minute, listen to that again. The whole altar which was by the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. Also in the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood that were gold overlaid. Wait, wait, also in. Well, does that mean that the ark, that the table of incense or the altar of incense was actually in the inner sanctuary? It starts to get a little more confusing, so that really doesn't help us at all. Go to Hebrews chapter 9, and let's check this out. Hebrews chapter 9 in your Bibles, and keep your thumb there in Exodus 30. We'll come right back to it. Hebrews 9, verse 1. You there? Give me a second to... See, normally when, when we're just doing the live stream, I just go right on with the reading because I figure they're either there or they're not, you know? Now, if you're at home, I'm, I'm waiting for everybody because I'm watching them turn. That's what's going on here. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. From there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Note that. He says, in the holy place were the lampstand and the table that held the sacred bread. He only lists the two. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense. And the ark of the covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. What? 
So the Hebrew pastor had a very different perspective. He puts the ark, not the ark, he puts the ark in the Holy of Holies, but he puts the altar of incense in there too. He says very clearly here that the altar of incense is in the Holy of Holies. Now you might think, well, does it really matter? It matters. It matters to God. When he's giving Moses the design for the tabernacle and all the furnishings, he was explicit with everything, exactly how it had to be, because it was holy to him. This was a holy place and a most holy place. You don't want to get this wrong. But, oy vey, the Hebrew pastor says that, that, that this was inside the altar of incense. And some argue there in Hebrews 9 that the Greek word for altar is thumiaterion. It, it is but it isn't actually used of altar. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Older Testament of the Hebrew Scriptures, the word thumiaterion is never used of the altar of incense. It is only used of a censer, a fire pan. And so they say, well, see, it, it, it doesn't mean the altar of incense. It means a fire pan. And they would, they would have these censers, these fire pans, where they would take coals and fire from the bronze altar, they put it in the fire pan and they would carry that inside and put that onto the altar of incense. Then they could offer up incense on that altar. So perhaps that's what he's talking about. You know, he's just saying having a golden censer of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered over on all sides with gold. That's a possibility. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 12 says, He shall take a fire pan full of coals from the fire upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. See, so he takes the fire pan, puts some of the fire from the altar actually of incense and takes that actually into the holiest place, the most holy place. He shall put incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony, otherwise he will die. Again, this is exacting. It was meant to be holy. So maybe it's just a fire pan that, that he's using there in Hebrews 9.4, a golden fire pan of incense and the altar and the ark of the covenant. Well, a fire pan would go in there, so that would make sense. But it's unlikely that the Hebrew pastor would mention the censer and totally leave out the altar of incense. Because if that is a censer, he doesn't say anything about the golden altar of incense, which is a key furnishing, so key that it's mentioned all by itself in Exodus chapter 30. God literally sets this furnishing apart. This is an, a highly important piece of furniture in the tabernacle. So did the Hebrew pastor just get it wrong? Did he leave it out? Another possibility is that the altar was originally inside the, the veil, that it was in the Holy of Holies, so that you had the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat, and you had the altar of incense on the inside, and then you had the veil, and then you came out and had the menorah and the table of showbread. Possibly, but it would only be approachable by Aaron and it would have to be the high priestly line of Aaron, so it would have to be the Aaronic line to be able to go in and, and offer. But that, that causes a problem. Some say, well, yeah, it was in there and then it got moved to the holy place before the second temple. And as we'll see, incense was offered in the holy place in the second temple as opposed to the most holy place by the first century. Now, if I'm confusing any of you, just put your thinking yarmulkes on for a moment here. Because either way, whether in the holy place or in the holy of holies, 
whether right up against the veil in the holy place or around on the other side of the veil in the holy of holies. Here's the point. The altar of incense was as close as any priest could get to the mercy seat. It was as close as you could get to God's presence. Even if it was on this side of the veil, it was as close as you could come with the exception of the high priest once a year on Yom Kippur. It was as close as you could get. Today, if you go into what's called the rabbi's tunnel, it's a tunnel that runs along the western wall underground in Jerusalem. There's a point as you're walking through there, winding through there where you stop and there's like this little open area and usually there are some Jewish women sitting in there praying right there and they're there every single time we go in there. I don't even know if they go home for lunch but there they are. Why in that place? Because they believe it's directly across from where the Ark of the Covenant is still today. Those who believe that it's underground, underneath the temple, they think that at this location, it's directly across. They're trying to get as close to the presence as possible. And it sounds divine and it sounds holy and to me it's tragic because you can get even closer, can't you? It misses the fact that the presence of God, the Spirit of God wants to dwell in you and in me right now. But that's the idea that they have. They want to get close. And so when you came to the altar of incense, again, whether it was before the veil or on this side or before the veil on that side, it was as close as you could get to the presence of God who said, I will meet you there. Only the veil would separate the ark from the altar of incense. And a good Hebrew boy or girl would know a woven veil is little protection against our God who is consuming fire. So there's a closeness to it, which I believe brings us now to the third point, and that is its purpose. What was it for? Go back to Exodus 30, verse 7. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. When Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord, throughout your generations. You shall not offer any strange incense on this altar, and two young priests are gonna try it. And we'll see that story when we get to Leviticus. He says, you shall not offer any burnt offering on this altar or meal offering. You shall not pour out a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year throughout your generations. It is most Holy to Yahweh, perpetual incense. Now the purpose seems very simple. Morning and evening before the Lord, perpetual incense was to burn. And so some read that and they say very simply and and truly, it was an appeasing tribute to God. This incense was just kind of a way to say we acknowledge you, Lord, and, and we're giving tribute to you. Others say that it actually symbolized the divine presence himself because the Shekinah glory of God would be that that cloud by day, fire by night. So there's a lot of the smoke on the mountain, fiery smoke, that glory of God. They say, well, yeah, when the incense goes up, that's the picture. Interesting thought. Others see it as a sign of royalty. You know, ancient kings would have their incense burning in their throne rooms as as kind of a royal symbol, so perhaps there's some royalty to it. Others just suggest it was a wireless plug-in air freshener. You know, of those suggestions, that's the most likely. 
Tremper Longman, a commentator, said, with all the slaughtering of sacrifices and manipulation of blood, the odor would have been overpowering without incense. That God wanted the incense to be a way of ameliorating, if not masking the smells, covering, if you will, the smell of sacrifice. Now, that falls in line because God's mercy covers our sin. But the sacrifice for sin is smelly and loud and brutal and bloody. And so there's a covering that takes place, a merciful covering. Well, biblically, we can be sure of two purposes for this altar of incense. Number one is that the gold altar was there because of the smells, that it was set up for that purpose. I have a, a plug-in air freshener in my office. Picked one up years ago when I figure people really don't want to meet with me and be hit by Odla Rick when they come in the door. Now, I sit in there and I study, and I'll, I'll be in there sometimes eight, ten hours, and I'm in there studying. Someone comes to meet me. They don't need to smell, just me. <laughs> so right now it's, it's lovely. It's, it's pumpkin spice, so if you want to come pay a visit, um, it's nice. Every, every year I change it around. Did you know that the Lord, it, for all his creative intentionality with with the way he made us, is not a fan of human sweat. He doesn't like the stink that comes off our bodies when we sweat. It's why the priestly tunics are of cool, breathable linen. He's purposeful in this. Even the priesthood in the millennial kingdom, and he addresses this, Ezekiel 44, 18. You might want to make a note of this because it just cracks me up. Linen turbans shall be on their heads, and linen undergarments shall be on their loins. They shall not gird themselves with anything which makes them sweat. No sweating in my tabernacle. No sweating in my priestly service. No perspiring priests or sweaty servants. Because the servant of the Lord must not strive. 2 Timothy 2, 24. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. God is not interested in our sweat. Sweat equity is not a thing with the Lord. You don't build up redemption by your hard work, by your labor, by the sweat of your brow. Remember what the sweat of your brow is? It's a function of the curse that was on Adam. Jesus isn't looking for, nor does he need, your perspiration to get his job done. What would he rather have? <laughs> the sweet aroma of incense on the altar. And if we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, the biblical reason for the altar, indirectly implied in Exodus 30, becomes abundantly clear as we move through the Word of God. And that is, and many of you know, the golden altar was there for prayer. That is the primary purpose. That's why of all the articles within the tabernacle, this one was almost most important. The mercy seat would be the most important, the mercy seat, the most significant on the Ark of the Covenant. But that altar of incense, highly significant to the Lord. Psalm 141 verse one says, O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering, and the evening offering being the evening incense offering. And that's the first place. Suddenly we get this picture. Oh, wait. 
When they went in to burn the incense, when the priest was offering up incense, he wasn't just standing there <laughs> while he's offering incense. He's in prayer for the people. He's representing the people to God with compassion and grace and love and concern. What's going on in the camp? They would bring that before the Lord, offer the incense that would go as with their prayers. We see this tangibly played out in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. You may be familiar with the story. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, which was Aaronic, so that's in the line of Aaron. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. They were both advanced in years. Verse 8, now it happened while he, that is Zacharias, was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So he's there. He's in the holy place. He's, and we know he's in the holy place because, again, only the high priest could go into the holy of holies. So at this point, the altar of incense had to be in the holy place because that's where Zacharias goes to offer the incense and he would not have had the right, though he's of the line of Aaron, he was still not the high priest. And it was not Yom Kippur. So he would not have had the right to go back into the most holy place. So he comes to the altar of incense and there's Zacharias. And we're told that outside at the same time, verse 10, the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. Why? Because they understood. Because now by the first century, everyone knew that's the deal. That's what you do. The offering of incense is an offering of prayer. So while Zacharias was praying, all the people were gathered outside lifting up prayers as well. Of course, it's Great, I just got to tell you the rest of the story. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. So John the Baptist's father. Prayer at the altar of incense. Incense being that biblical picture of prayer. And, and for you Bible students, I'm not telling you anything new, but we're just establishing this basis because it's so vital. It would be almost 100 more years before we finally learn unequivocally from the divine perspective that the altar of incense truly really was all about prayer, that that was God's intention and that's how God saw it from the very beginning. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, as John had that glorious vision, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." So we know now, that's the deal. That's what the, that was always the intention, that the offering at the altar of incense, yes, it would be a fragrant aroma. Yes, it would be a sweet smell. Yes, there would be smoke coming up off of the altar, but it was while the priest was praying that we have a sensory picture of a spiritual event, the prayers of the saints. And there is an incense sweetness to our prayers before the Lord. We draw near 
like the priests of God to the gold altar. We draw near in prayer. We offer by prayer what is a pleasing aroma to the Lord, your prayers. And, and by the way, it's not predicated on how well you speak, how articulate or literate you are when you pray. How poetic you sound is completely beside the point because what causes the incense of your prayer to be sweet to God is your heart. Heart of a child coming before the Lord, just saying, Jesus, I love you, in simple language, is the sweetest smelling incense. And it's a beautiful picture that our prayers rise like that. A more pleasing aroma before the Lord than all the burnt offerings and all the sacrifices over the hundreds of years that it was offered by Israel. Even David recognized this in his repentant psalm, Psalm 51, 16. He said, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise that's incense. That's a beautiful prayer rising up. Like, I believe, I don't know if you saw this, the return yesterday on the Capitol Mall, all the prayers rising up of the people gathered there and people throughout the country. And if you were not, it came up so last, I didn't even hear about it until just last week. But this idea of, of being a people who are repentant before the Lord, who are honest about our sin and how far this country has strayed from its biblical foundation, Repenting of the things we do in this day and age, repenting of our rebellious spirit that is so contrary to the heart of Jesus and that sweet incense that rises. Speaking of the incense, look at it, why don't you? Real quickly, skip down to the end of Exodus chapter 30 and look at verse 34. It's described for us, the Lord said to Moses, take for yourselves spices, stacte, onica, and galbanum, spices with pure frankincense, there shall be an equal part of each. So we've got these four spices. The first one is called stacte in Hebrew, nataf. Nataf was a woodsy tree resin, either from balsam trees or persimmon trees, but it had a, a real dense woodsy smell to it, apparently. Onica is the Hebrew word shechelet, and it was a, a fingernail-shaped mollusk that gives off a strong aromatic substance, and they would use that. A strong aroma from this mollusk and a woodsy aroma from this tree resin, and then galbanum is chalbanah in Hebrew, and that's a pungent gum resin from a plant that grows in Persia or Turkestan or Crete. So it's specific to those areas. And all three of these, note, it's interesting because he says you're going to mix equal parts of all these things. But the first three given are strong, pungent spices. And when mixed together, if you just had those three, it would not yield sweet incense. Pungent, yes. Strong, overpowering perhaps, but not sweet. you got to have the fourth one, which is frankincense. Frankincense, even the word came to be used of the incense, came to refer to the incense. If you said the frankincense, people knew, oh yeah, it's the mixture of which frankincense was a part, but a vital part. Frankincense, levona, in Hebrew, literally means whiteness. Whiteness because it produces a pure white smoke when it's burned. 
So they would burn the incense, this mixture of stacte, onica, galbanum, and frankincense, and it would produce this white smoke that would fill the whole of the holy place, and when carried in by the censer, would fill the most holy place. But get it, note it, frankincense is the key ingredient that takes the strong, pungent odors of the other three, mixes in, and makes those three spices sweet. It's the first mention right here of frankincense in the Bible, here in verse 34. Its most famous mention comes quite a bit later, Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. After coming to the house, the Magi saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him, and then opening their treasures, they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's the most significant, and we always talk about that around the time of Christmas. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6, speaking of the kingdom, says, A multitude of camels will cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense. No myrrh. In the kingdom, myrrh is no longer a needed thing because nobody's dying. Myrrh was for a burial spice. But they'll bring frankincense and they'll bear Good news of the praises of the Lord. So frankincense is the incense sweetener. Why is that significant? Because Jesus Christ sweetens our prayers. He is the key to blending our prayers into a sweet aroma. Your prayers, my prayers by themselves might be a little too strong. Might at times be too pungent. <laughs> An overwhelming smell, but mixed in with the frankincense that is Jesus, as he takes our prayers and he blends them with his own voice, they become oh so sweet before the Lord. He said in John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And he's not talking about saying, in Jesus' name, amen. As if we're saying sincerely, Rick. Affectionately yours, Rick. In Jesus' name, amen. We've made it such, I mean, I, and I'm not opposed, by the way, because I end my prayers in Jesus' name. Sometimes, just to freak people out, I start my prayers in Jesus' name. Wait, it doesn't go there, does it? <laughs> Praying in Jesus' name is not just adding a tagline. Praying in Jesus' name means you're praying in his will. You're praying in his desire. You're praying in his spirit. You're seeking what he wants he said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. I asked in Jesus' name for a portion. I never got it as a teenager. Over and over, in Jesus' name I pray. John 16, 23, he said, In that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he'll give it to you. Until now you've asked for nothing in my name, Jesus says. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. In John 16, 26, he says, In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. It's a relationship. Ask in the relationship of Jesus. Ask in the purpose and to the person of Jesus. Invite Jesus in to your prayers. And note this also, all four of these spices, all four are foreign 
Not one was indigenous to Israel. They all had to be imported into the land. You ever feel like your prayer is a foreign thing, like you can't find the right words, or you're not exactly sure how to put them together? You're not even sure what kind of language to use? Romans chapter 8, verse 24. In hope, we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. We do not know how to pray as we should. This is the Apostle Paul writing this. And he doesn't say, you don't know how to pray as you should. He says, we don't know. We don't fully grasp it. We're like three spices, man. And sometimes we're way over the top, and sometimes we're really weak, and other times we're just pungent. And he says, we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And of course, then we know that God causes all things to work together for good. For who? For anyone? No, to those who are called according to his purpose. That is those who live life in Jesus' name, who pray in Jesus' name. But get this, as all four of these resinous spices had to be imported, so, so we see that if our prayers are to be strong and sweet, they can't be indigenous to earth. Huh? They can't come from earth. They can't originate with us. They've got to emanate from the Holy Spirit within us. And we've talked about this before, that the best prayers are the prayers that God gives us to pray. How does, how does that work? How often do you begin by saying, Lord, I'm not even sure what to ask here. That's not a bad beginning. But continue on with, Lord, I don't know what to ask here, so I'm asking you, would you give me prayers to pray? Would you give me your will to pray in this? Lord, in Jesus' name, help me to speak prayers that you want to answer, prayers that you desire to answer, prayers that you will to answer. But very simple in our prayers, and try this out. Start by praying in the name of Jesus. Sweetest name I know, the frankincense to our incense. And then ask the Lord to give you prayers that he wants to answer. And it will change the way you pray. But note this, there's one more thing that's added into this mixture in verse 35. With it, you shall make incense a perfume, the work of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. And if your Bible translation says something other than salted, the word is salted. They were to take this incense, these four parts to it, mixed together in equal parts, and then prior to offering it, they would salt it. Why? Salt was used in the ancient world for one reason. We use it today for the same reason with our food. I put it on my eggs in the morning, I'll put it on cantaloupe. That freaked out my kids when they came home from Ghana. They're like, what, why are you salting the fruit? And I'm like, trust me, try it. And you know what it does, it enhances flavor. Salt does that with incense. If you salt incense, it actually enhances, it brings out the flavor of the incense. It enhances that aroma. 
And so they would take these, these four aspects with the sweetness of the frankincense, sweetening the whole thing, and then it's salted. I find that interesting because Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. A, a salted speech, not a salty speech. You don't want to be salty. <laughs> See, that's the way the world thinks of it. Salty is crass and coarse and cursing. But biblically speaking, salted speech is spoken with grace. I think our culture could use a little more salted speech. I think in the way people tweet and the way they post and the things that are said electronically, and I think the way we speak to each other needs some salt. We need a little grace. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 13, you're the salt of the earth. That implies there's grace, graciousness there. That implies an enhancing of good flavor. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So we've got this beautiful sweet incense, this aroma, sweet and salted and sacred before the Lord. Holy and unique, only to be used on this altar. And verse 37 says, The incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourselves. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. I don't want my daughters using Amazing Grace perfume. That is for mom alone. We'll get you something else, but that's specific to Cheryl, because that, for me, that's a scent that reminds me of my wife. How much more so the Lord's saying, this, is, this incense is for me. This is something I'm asking you to do only for me. Don't, don't make this stuff in your homes. Priests, don't go homes to your wives and, and start burning this stuff in your, home, in, your, in your tents, in your houses. You're not to do that. He says, whoever shall make any like it to use his perfume shall be cut off from his people. The incense had a singular sacred use to be pleasing to the Lord. And few things are more pleasing to God than when our sometimes strong, often pungent, even confused prayers get mixed up with the fragrance of the frankincense of Jesus offered up. You know, in fact, what I think pleases the Lord more than just about anything, it's the prayers of the saints that are mixed together with the frankincense of Jesus. Let me say that again. The prayers of the saints mixed together with the frankincense of Jesus. Prayed together, in prayer together. We've learned a few things over the years. One of the things in our shepherd meetings is that we don't have someone lead an opening prayer and a closing prayer. We don't do it that way. Everybody prays. We open up in prayer and we will all just wait. Sometimes there will be moments of silence. We hate silence. It's uncomfortable. It was silent in the holy and the holy of holies, my friends. It was quiet and peaceful in there. So in prayer, don't think of silence as something uncomfortable or awkward. Think of silence as sweet and holy and restful. But praying together, two or three, Jesus said two or three gathered in my name, I'm there. And when you come together and I bring my prayers and you bring your prayers and we mix together in the unity of the Spirit, and we pray together and the frankincense of Jesus mixes in, I think to the Lord, that's the sweetest prayer of all. That's the sweetest incense rising of 
any, which is why Romans 15, 13, Paul says, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Paul says, and he says it often, would you pray with me? Would you pray for me? Can we pray together? Paul says in another place, 1 Timothy 2.8, therefore I want the men in every place lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. That stuff stinks. But I want the men, why does he say the men and leave the women out? Because the women are already praying. <laughs> right? Because our sisters, bros, tend to be more easily in the spirit. Takes us a little longer to get there. And the Lord says, I want the men to pray. I want the men leading out in the prayer. I want their holy hands lifted together in prayer. Well, dude, that's a little awkward. So what? It's sweet to the Lord. When the people gather and pray together. And again, our prayers, my prayers alone might be a little pungent. Yours may be a little strong, but we mix together. We pray together in the name of Jesus. As Paul said, Ephesians 2 4 verse 2, with all humility and gentleness and with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. By the way, that's always why we are to gather. That's how unity works, when we gather in spirit and in peace, not in rebellion, not in selfishness, but in humility and quietly, gently, with patience, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We mix our prayers together in equal parts with the sweet name of Jesus. And you know what happens? It is incense rising up to heaven. It shakes the heavens and the earth. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, that says, when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Which to me is one of the more profound moments Described in the Bible. He broke the seal and everything went quiet. You and I get uncomfortable when we have silence for 30 seconds. Let's try it. See, I was wondering how long it would take for someone to laugh. We just, we're not used to just sitting together in silence, but something's happening here in heaven. Something's going on. The lamb breaks the seventh seal and everything, hush. And it's silent. For about half an hour, not a sound. Why? Might the silence of heaven be the waiting for the saints to pray? No angel is speaking. No cherubim shouting, holy, holy, holy to the Lord. No clanking of crowns thrown by the elders gathered around the, the throne. Nothing. Absolute silence. Why? Shh, the saints are about to pray. And when the saints pray, it is the sweetest incense before the Lord of anything we can possibly offer. Verse two of Revelation chapter eight says, then I saw the seven angels who stand before God with, and seven trumpets were given to them. Oh, there's gonna be some noise. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints 
on the golden altar, which was before the throne. Guess what? This little altar in the tabernacle is a shadowy representation of the actual altar of incense and prayer before the Lord in heaven. It is a real thing, my friends. And the smoke of the incense, that intercessory rising up, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand and the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and threw it to the earth and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake, everything shaking and quaking. Why? Because the prayers are heard. God is now responding to the prayers of the saints. One thing to note, however, what's sweet in terms of incense before the Father in heaven was shaking the world below. Because what smells pleasing and sweet to God is often offensive to the world. 2 Corinthians 2.15, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who's adequate to these things? And I answer that, certainly not me. Who can figure this out? How, how I am a, a sweet aroma to my brothers and sisters and yet a, a stench of death to those who reject Jesus who stand in rebellion. I don't know how this all works, but you know what? The Spirit of Christ in me, he brings out the sweet and the salted and the sacred in my messed up prayers. See, we all come to God in our prayers with a mixed bag. You know, we have truly altruistic, God-honoring intentions, and we got selfishness mixed in there as well. We have a love of the Father, and yet we've got a frustration with brothers and sisters. And so we kind of come with this, how do I even pray? Blah. And we shoot it out there and it's strong <laughs> or pungent. And Jesus takes that and sweetens it up, salts it with grace. And our prayers, your prayers, become a sacred, holy, sweet thing before the Lord. Now, before we finish, I gotta add one more thing, a fourth aspect I didn't mention before of this beautiful little golden altar Talked about its production, how it was made, its placement there in the holy place before the Lord. Before the Lord. I got one more thing to say about that. I'll tell you in just a second. But its placement, its purpose, yes, it was to ameliorate the other odors and to make the inside of the tabernacle sweet, but also it is a picture of prayer. Number four, note this, its person. Its person. That is who it represents or represented. Every piece of furniture in the tabernacle represents Christ in one way or another. Every one of them points to Messiah. And the altar of incense is no exception to all of this. It is another profound picture of Jesus. You see the acacia wood speaking of his humanity, the overlay of gold speaking of his divinity. You see the crown around it which speaks of his royalty, it's a beautiful picture of Jesus and yet even more so what's emanating from this altar is that sweet incense and we see this from the very beginning with Jesus. Mark 1.35, in the early morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Early in the morning, offering his prayers. 
Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it was at this time that he went off on the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God, that sweet incense of the sun emanating through the night. Matthew 14, 23, after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone, praying in the morning, praying in the evening, praying throughout the day in his ministry. And Luke 22, 44 tells us that being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And I ask you, if Jesus had prayed for the first time in Gethsemane, I wonder if he would have been strengthened at all. If this wasn't the pattern and, and the process of Jesus' entire life, the picture, that constancy of prayer, morning and evening throughout his life, this is what Jesus did because that's what the altar of incense does. It offers up incense before the Lord. And it represents Jesus in profound ways. Now, I've been asked more than once an interesting question, and perhaps you've thought it. If Jesus is God, why does he pray? Why does God pray to God? Well, let me ask you, you ever talk to yourself? <laughs> Don't answer that. You ever driving down the road, and you're just having a nice little conversation, and then you look around and go, <laughs> I'm crazy. No, it's more than that. Listen, I I've shared this, but don't miss this. What Jesus did when he put on flesh was not only show us who God is, he also showed us who we may be to him. He shows us both angles, the picture of God, but also the picture of a son, a child of God, how we are to be to him. And so prayer to Jesus was nearness and closeness. It was unveiled intimacy with God the Father. And by the way, one of the reasons I think the Hebrew pastor may have put the altar of incense inside the Holy of Holies in front of the ark in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, is that by that time the veil was gone. By the time he wrote the Hebrew letter, there was no veil. So... So the, the ark, the altar of incense, there was no separation. That's a beautiful picture because, again, it is about closeness. And now, today, this morning, Romans chapter 8, verse 34 says, Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He's still praying. He is still the altar of incense. He is still offering up prayers on your behalf, on my behalf, and listen, on our behalf. I have prayed a lot for the church in this season, a lot. It's been tough. It's been tough for churches. There has been a shifting going on, and I've talked to several other pastors about this. And I may have shared some of the statistics with you about this uh, so I'm not going to get all into that. They do say that 50% of pastors surveyed are going to quit the ministry after this is all said and done. I'm not. You're stuck. <laughs> you don't like this, you know, there's the door. <laughs> no, but the reason is because the church is going through all kinds of pain right now. 
not the bridge, the church. And we're seeing a shifting and we're seeing people use the season to, to up and leave and go to other places. And, and we see people coming to here and, and there's a moving about. And you know what the Lord's telling me in this is I'm praying and asking, what's going on here, Lord? What I'm hearing is God saying, I'm doing my thing. You just sit tight. You know, he told me a long time ago, just teach the word. So that's, that's what I'm gonna do. Teach the word, gather, pray, expect, because I'm doing something here. And as much as it pains me to say this, if the Lord leads you somewhere else, then he's got a purpose in that. I may not see, but who am I to judge that? If the Lord has led you here in this season, who am I to judge why or why not? You have to answer to him. I have to answer to him. But while there's this moving going on, the Lord wants his people to pray. The Lord wants his people unified in prayer. Jesus Christ is interceding right now, not just for the bridge or Life Church or Living Word or Christ the King or the Baptist Church or the Pentecostal church, he's, he's praying for his church. He is interceding for his people, for all of us, and for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace to be over the church of which the bridge is a little fellowship. We have always just been a fellowship of the larger church with brothers and sisters all over the place, whether they meet here or not is beside the point. And it, it is profound to me to remember that Jesus is praying for us all of his people, interceding for all of his people all the time. Hebrews chapter eight, verse 23 says, the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the incense is going up from Jesus. It's going up for you personally and me. It's going up for us here in the Bridge Fellowship. It's going up for the church worldwide. And you know what? He's still making intercession for those who have yet to receive him. He's still standing on behalf of those who are lost and don't even know it. He is still praying, come home, Come home. And dear ones, hear this. Jesus not only prays prayers of sweet incense, no, he became the sweet incense. He is the incense. Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. He is the altar and he is the incense. And that's why we pray in Jesus' name. We're just praying in the incense of Christ, in the aroma of Christ. He offered himself as the sweetest, most fragrant aroma ever offered to God. And he invites you to join him in that prayer. I'll end with this. John Newton famously composed Amazing Grace, but he wrote many other hymns and works and he wrote a beautiful poem. Look it up, I won't read the whole thing but it's called The Effort, The Effort. And he begins saying, approach my soul, the mercy seat, where Jesus answers prayer. 
They're humbly fall before his feet, for none can perish there. And then he ends, O wondrous love to bleed and die, to bear the cross and shame, that guilty sinners such as I might plead thy gracious name. Oh, Jesus, we plead your name this morning. We come to you speaking your name, praying in your name, crying out your name, recognizing no other authority over us but the name of Jesus. And we ask you, Lord, this morning, for ourselves gathered right here, for those at home listening in, we ask that you would take all of our prayers and mix them together with your own, with your name, with your intercession, and even your interpretation. And may they all rise up as the prayers of the saints, a sweet and pleasing, fragrant aroma before God. Father, we pray for your church throughout the world. In Oak Harbor, our brothers and sisters in other fellowships. In Anacortes, our brothers and sisters in other fellowships. In Coopville, in, in Clinton and down in the south. In, in Bow and Edison, Father, and out to Mount Vernon and Burlington. And I could list all the cities in Washington, but then I'd have to list all the cities, Lord, on the west coast. And then we'd have to list all the cities throughout America and we'd have to list all the countries because your church, oh, Lord Jesus, your church is worldwide. And we gather our hearts and our voices this morning in the name of Jesus with the global church community. A community of people, Lord, that you know we don't always get it right. We trip and we fumble and we shout and we clamor and, Oh, Lord, I think of how often I belong in the outer courtyard where the sacrifice has taken place and where things are noisy and smoke is going up. Thank you for inviting us to the holy place. Thank you for renting the veil from top to bottom so that there is no separation. There is just one meeting place with you. Thank you, Jesus, for entering our hearts and drawing us near to you. And I praise your name with double thanksgiving for the peace which surpasses all comprehension and yet guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we like the incense would pray morning and night perpetually throughout the day of people who pray without ceasing. And Lord, we long for the day when we will join the angels and the saints around the throne and, and be there. Lord, I, I believe be there in that half hour of silence. Be there waiting for all the prayers of all the saints to be mixed with the incense. Lord, just to be in your presence for we recognize that that's the whole point of the tabernacle was a place of meeting, to meet with you there. Father, we join our prayers with yours for those lost. We intercede on behalf of family and friends, loved ones, and Father, of people we don't even know. In fact, Father, of people we don't even like. That's where our prayers get a little weird. We're praying for every person on the planet to be saved in the name of Jesus. We're asking, we're interceding. We're praying that hearts would be changed, 
that voices would cry out, Jesus, be my Lord. If that's you here this morning, whether in person or listening in, if you've never received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I beg you to do it right now. And we invite you to do it right now, to pray. Pray with me, just right now in your heart before the Lord. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I'm a sinner. As Newton wrote, I'm a guilty sinner, but I plead your gracious name. Lord, forgive me of my sin and bring me to the joy of salvation. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, Mashiach, Son of God. And this morning, I declare, I say aloud, you are my Lord and my Savior. Father, do save. And come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <music>